First John will be looking at chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. And this Sunday, next Sunday, we'll be spending time in 1 John 5. It's one of my favorite books. A lot of what he says is still relevant for us today, as it was in the time of John. Let's look at uh, 1 John 5, verses 1 through 12. John writes, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments. And His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater, for this is the testimony of God that He is born concerning His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God has the testimony in, his, in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God is born concerning His Son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has a Son has life, Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Let's pray. Lord, I pray as we look at your word this morning that we quiet our hearts, we quiet our minds. Lord, that you would speak to us. If we need encouraging, that you would encourage us. If we need challenging, that you would challenge us as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For the uh, scripture through prayer, I... One of the selections I put down was Matthew 16 because Jesus asked the right questions. He begins by saying to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And if you go out on the street, you get a wide variety of answers, a wide variety of descriptions of who Jesus is. But then he asks his disciples the key question, who do you say that I am? Because that's what it boils down to is what do we believe? And John's going to address that in this passage. And so it is important because Peter, as he makes his confession, he goes ahead and, and says that, um, he says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for the flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And what we see is Jesus is acknowledging that he is the Son of God. He is God the Son. He is the Messiah. He is the Anointed One. He is divine. And that's where the world oftentimes takes issue with who Jesus is. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity. How many people have read that book? Oh, good, quite a few of you. It's a great book. But in that book, he talks about Jesus, who makes these claims, is either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. Jesus is a liar if he makes these claims of divinity, but knowing that they are false. Or, if he believes that he's all these things, but the facts dictate otherwise, then he's delusional. He's a lunatic. But if his claims are true, then he is Lord. 
And that's what C.S. Lewis, who was an agnostic, acknowledged, that Jesus is Lord. And that's what we will see in this passage here. And this gets to the issue, to the heart of what cults believe. If you ask the cults, what do you say about Jesus? They are close to the truth, but then it goes off. Some would say, oh yes, we believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, do you believe that He's God the Son? Well, no. They won't quite go that route. Well, there's other things that are off from what doctrine says. And doctrine is important. What we believe. What we teach our children is exceedingly important. What we teach the next generation. Back many, many, many years ago when I was a flight instructor in Texas in the early 80s, uh, before I left to go to seminary and become a Navy chaplain, our pastor was talking about the Mormon church, how it was growing in its numbers. And where were they getting their new adherents? Many were coming from the Baptist church. And why was that? Because they did not know doctrine. Doctrine gets a dirty word gets a dirty reputation. But that should not be the case because the words are important. The doctrine is important. What we teach our children is important. Back in my junior year in high school, then a special class with English and history combined together. I don't know how this was done. This was back in 1971. Maybe one of my teachers was a Mormon, but two Mormon missionaries came to speak to our class. And it was a great story of what they were saying. And I went to church every Sunday. I was an acolyte or an altar boy in the Episcopal Church. But I did not know Jesus. And I was enthralled with the story of Mormonism. But there's this one little girl in my class whose father was a pastor. And she just sat and raised her hand and asked a question. And then asked another question. And then another question. And her father had taught her the Scriptures. And she backed them in a nice way time and time again into a corner because of doctrine. And so the question is important. Christian, what do you believe? That's a historic prelude to the Apostles' Creed that we recited this morning. Christian, what do you believe? And John in this passage talks about key things. We're going to look at this morning. Core beliefs, witnesses to the truth, and then the results or experience of that witness. He begins in verse 1, if you look at your Bibles of uh, 5.1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And the idea of believe is that of a present tense. It is an ongoing individual faith. And what John here is address, doing is he's addressing a heresy. The heresy that he had to deal with is very similar to the many heresies that we have today. Chapman Gilliam a couple weeks ago, what did he say when he preached from Ecclesiastics? There is nothing new under the sun. And that is true. So John is addressing a heresy. And look what he does here. We think of Jesus Christ as a name. And it has become that. But it's a name and a title. And John here, he breaks up. He says, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ. Think equal sign. Jesus equals the Christ. What is the Christ? It's the Messiah. The anointed one. Jesus is the put emphasis on Christ, God's anointed one. But then also think of it this way. Jesus is the Christ. And he addresses different views of who Jesus is. Some have a low view of Jesus. How could Jesus be the Messiah? Or some would have this idea, how could this exalted Messiah have any relationship to a man? But while we see that Jesus is the Christ, he is fully God and fully man. 
Those who would deny that he is the Christ, they are in uh, spiritual peril. John writes again in 1 John 2, 22-23, Who is a liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist. He who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. And so that's the danger for those who deny that Jesus is the Christ. But then he goes on. Those who believe that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. We are members. Those who believe are members of God's family. He uses the past tense, what we call the perfect uh, tense, that is past action, but ongoing results to the present. I was thinking of it this way. 35 years ago, I was married. Past action, but I'm still married. Ongoing results. A significant event in the past. And so when one believes in Jesus, he becomes a member of God's family. He is born of God. And what does John tell us in uh, verses 4 and 5? That the one who is born of God overcomes the world. Has victory. Again, the first time he uses overcome the world is in verse 4. For everyone who has been born of God, that past action, ongoing result, overcomes the world, present tense, and again, it may, it's ongoing or it may establish a principle. If you're born of God, then you overcome the world. What is the world? It's that negative sense of humanity. It's against God. It's against His church. It's against, it's against the powers of evil that the Christian can have victory through the, re, the risen Jesus. Our victory is found in Jesus. Against the powers of evil. And he tells us in verse 4 that the victory is found in faith. Again, he continues in verse 4. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Again, overcome in the beginning is present tense, that ongoing result, the principle. But now he says when we come to faith, we have overcome the world. And it's our faith that overcomes the world. It's our faith in Jesus. The object of faith must be valid. Again, if you go out on the street and ask, who is Jesus, you get a wide variety of answers. And that's why also was that reading from Galatians 1. If we believe a different Jesus, there is no salvation. We must believe the Jesus of the Bible. So victory is found in faith. And we overcome the world through that. <clears throat> but he continues in verse 5. He says, Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? And so the second core belief, the first was, Jesus is the Christ. The second is, we must believe that Jesus is the Son of God. It's the present tense, the idea of ongoing belief. Um, it's maintaining the faith. And again, John uses similar language uh, in chapter 4 when he says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. We have that mutual dwelling. We have that union with God. The word abide has a, sometimes is translated to remain, to dwell. So we dwell with God and he dwells with us. There's that mutual abiding, that union that we have with God, that union that we have with Christ that nothing can separate us at all. And so... It is this that overcomes um, the world. Again, he says in verse 5, Who is it that overcomes the world? 
but the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. In verse 4, he uses a broad term that everyone who believes. Now in verse 5, he kind of narrows it down a little bit. And he uses the one who believes, the one who overcomes. It's not just general, but it becomes more personal. And again, the world is negative. It's that all that represents the enmity with God and his children and his church. And what is it that we are to believe? Again, John makes it clear. We are to believe that Jesus is the Son of God. That means deity. That means that Jesus is God. And again, John is addressing heretical tendencies. Jesus, as God's Son, was sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. Again, John tells us, because he was a witness to this, he says in uh, 1 John 4, 14, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be Savior of the world. That's why he came. And in John's mind, there's a little difference between the title Son of God and the Christ. They both speak of, of, of his uh, divine nature there. And that's the essence of the gospel, that we have Jesus who is one with humanity, is also the Christ and Son of God and is one with God the Father. That's what one commentator says. And so Jesus was fully God and fully human. He came in the flesh to do what we could not do and to keep God's law perfectly. And it was this Messiah, this Savior, who endured the wrath that was meant for us that we deserve. Now why is doctrine important because false doctrine can kill um, fire ants are there fire ants up this far north we used to live in the North Carolina f uh, four hours away and there were fire ants down there and fire ants as you know are very aggressive they are nasty my dad down in Florida uh, before he died he had friends uh, and the man was working out in the garden and he stepped in a nest full of fire ants and he died from um, the reaction to that. And our Philip, when he was four years old back in 1991, we're in North Carolina, my second tour as a chaplain, walking around the playground, he stepped in a fire ant colony. And again, those things, they just swarm. And they are nasty. So how do you kill those things? Well, they were everywhere. Some people would pour gasoline on it. They tried to burn it out. But that didn't work. And a little while later, another mound would pop up where... Uh, they had access to, uh, to uh, the surface again. The way that they would kill them was put out food pellets. And so the workers would take the food pellets down to the colony, feed the colony, but also feed the queen. And when the queen dies, what happens to the colony? The colony dies. That food that looked so great was deadly. And so it is with doctrine. False doctrine looks so great, but it is deadly. That's why the scriptures talk about teaching your children, teaching the next generation. And it is so important if we do so. If left unchecked, the next generation will die spiritually. Paul, as he writes to Timothy, addresses this issue. Because nine times in First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul uses the word sound or health, in which we get the word hygiene. And he used to address sound teaching, sound faith, sound words and he says in uh, 2 Timothy uh, 4, 3 and 4 for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions 
and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. And we see that is happening today. Many mainline churches are preaching, teaching unhealthy, unsound doctrine, whether it's on Christ or whether it's on marriage, that marriage is no longer between a man and a woman, or on gender, that there's no longer just male and female, that goes against what God tells us in Genesis. Or on the sanctity of life, any number of things. And so that's why Paul warns Timothy and Titus on that. And so doctrine is important. So it lays out the core beliefs. What are we to believe? He's the Christ. He's the Son of God. But we'd be fools if we just believed something that had no basis in reality. And so then John moves on, so he talks about the witnesses to the truth. And begins in verse uh, 6. He says, This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ, not by water only, but by the water and the blood. Well, what does he mean by water and blood? There are some who would say that he's referring to the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. But what John appears to be referring to are historical facts. What are those historical facts? The water represents baptism, but it's Jesus' baptism, which is at the beginning of his public ministry. And what was the blood? Blood was his death on the cross that marked the end of his public ministry. Fortunately for us, praise the Lord, his ministry did not end with his death because there are lots of people who died. But he rose again. He rose from the dead, the resurrection, and that's where our, our hope is found. And so the water marked the beginning of his ministry. The blood on the cross, his death on the cross marked the end of his ministry. And again, John was addressing some of the Gnostics, some of the early heretical tendencies that would take issue with that. Jesus came to be the atoning sacrifice for all, again, who are under the wrath of God. And both of these, the water and the blood, the historical acts of his baptism and his death on the cross, they testify to Jesus Christ. Notice how he writes it here. This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He combines the name of the human with the title of the Messiah. And again, now we know that as the name Jesus Christ. But he combines uh, the divine with the human. Jesus, John emphasizes that not merely a human Jesus was baptized and died on the cross. Jesus the man and the divine Christ, not two persons, but one. Again, this is some of the early heresies that the church had to deal with. What we believe is that there's two natures, divine and human, in the one person of Jesus Christ. And that's what John is also teaching. He's again disputing some of the uh, early uh, heretics who would say that the spirit of the Christ came upon Jesus when he was baptized and the spirit of the Christ left Jesus before Jesus died on the cross. That is heresy. That is deadly. If that were the case, we would have no hope. So John is uh, disputing some of those um, um, early heresies. And one commentator said that John is attacking two heresies. There is the Greek view that Jesus was not fully human, hence the emphasis on the baptism and the cross. There was a form of heresy that was called docetism, from the Greek word to seem, saying that Jesus only appeared to be in the flesh, 
is almost like a phantom, but he wasn't really here physically. And that's Docetism. And then the other was a Jewish assertion that Christ was not fully God. And so John is addressing these things when he talks about the water and the blood testify to Jesus Christ. But he doesn't stop there because the second part of verse 6 says this. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. For there, uh, we'll stop right there. We'll go to verse 7 in just a minute. So now he's talking about um, the Spirit of God. The Spirit is the truth. And again, you think of an equal sign. Spirit equals truth. And what we know is that the Spirit testifies to Jesus' baptism at the baptism. The Spirit comes down like a dove. Um, mentioned in uh, Matthew 3 and John the Baptist in John 131-33 mentions it as well. Where upon the baptism, Jesus, who was identifying himself with other humans, with mankind, when he was baptized, undergoing the baptism of John. And so we have that activity of bearing witness, but also his nature. He is the truth. That sounds similar to what John, or um, as he describes Jesus' words in John 14, 6, where Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. In verse John 5, 20, he also talks about the fact that Jesus is the truth, that the Son of God is the truth. And later on, or, or in his gospel, John in 14, John 15, and John 16, describes the Spirit as the Spirit of truth. That is a quality that expresses who the Spirit is. He is truth. He is not false. And then John goes on to see there's an agreement between these three witnesses. He says in verse 7 and 8, For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. Again, John might have had in mind that in the Mosaic Law, it required two or three witnesses to establish a fact. And that's what John is doing here. So we have the two or three witnesses. We have the water, we have the blood, and we have the Holy Spirit. They continue to testify even now, present tense that John uses. And so we have the ever-present testimony of the water at the historical act of his baptism and the blood at the historical act of his death. And then he talks about the Spirit. All three testify to the truth that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the Son of God. And he goes on in verse 9 that the witness of God is greater than the witness of men. Why? Because again, the Spirit himself testifies at baptism. The voice of God spoke after the baptism of Jesus. This is my Son in whom I am well pleased. So God stands behind the testimony of the Spirit. Again, the historical acts of the water and the blood. What then is the result? We looked at core beliefs. We looked at the, the witness of the testimony. What does that mean for me? What does that mean for you when we believe, when we trust in Christ? What are the results of that witness? He tells us that the first part of uh, 1 John 5, chapter 10, he says, whoever believes in the Son has a testimony in himself. Belief or trust leads to the internal witness of the Holy Spirit. This serves to confirm experientially God's testimony about His Son. It's the inner conviction, of, inner conviction of the Holy Spirit within us. Paul addresses this in Romans 
8.16 where he says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And in 2 Corinthians 1.22, speaking of God, he says, And who, that is God, has also put a seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. This is where the enemy attacks. He attacks the assurance of salvation, and we'll look at that next week. But that's where the enemy attacks. And so the Lord places the spirit within us. We have the external witness, historical witness, but God gives us also the internal witness to tell us that we are a child of God. We can call, as one of the readings uh, of, of grace, we can say, Abba, Father, because we are born of God, we are in His family. So it balances or complements the external and historical witnesses. When he talks about believing, it says believe in Christ. It expresses faith of personal commitment and reliance. It speaks of a personal trust. It's trusting in Christ alone for salvation. It's not just intellectual assent to the facts. You go out on the streets, who is Jesus? They may say, oh, he's the Son of God. What is it that they really believe? And it's believing in our heart. It's trusting in Christ alone for salvation. And so that belief leads to the internal witness. But the second part of verse 10 is a warning. John continues, Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne his son. That is a solemn charge, again directed at those who are radically inclined in John's congregation. And earlier in the book, John takes issue with those who call God a liar. If you look at the 110, John writes this. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, referring to God, a liar. And his word is not in us. If we don't believe his testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, we make God a liar. That is a solemn charge that he makes. And really what you're dealing here is two denials. The denial of sin and the denial of God's testimony that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And those two denials are really theologically linked. If there is no sin, why do you need the gospel? Why do you need the Son of God? Why do you need the Messiah? Why do you need the Redeemer? Because you don't. And for many, sin is a dirty word. When I would counsel with the folks, with my Marines and sailors, I would use the S word. I would use sin. Oh, chaplain, don't say that. You're judging me. I'm telling you what the Word of God says. But there is hope because Jesus deals with sin. There is hope in the Gospel. And so what John says is those who deny this, they call God a liar. Society still denies sin. They still deny the need for Christ. So-called Christian churches do it as well. There's one well-known mainline Presbyterian church in 2016 at the start of the General Assembly offered a prayer to Allah. Now, there are many who were quite shocked in that denomination when that was done. But you can see what it is saying about the importance of Christ. Is He really necessary? So unbelief calls God a liar. But John switches back to the positive. He says in verse 11 and 12, he says, verse 11, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. The testimony here is not that 
Jesus is the Son of God and the Christ, the testimony here is that God gave us eternal life and this life is in His Son. This is eternal life. God is the one who gives it. He's the giver of life. He gives it to us. He's the source of eternal life and it's found in Jesus Christ. There's salvation in no one else despite what people might try to tell you. Again, we had a senator who chastised a man who's up for confirmation because he had expressed previously his belief in Jesus. And basically, this Christian man was called a bigot. How dare you believe that Jesus is the only way? That is God's way. Leaving something else is death. But he says, those who believe have life. God gave us this life. Present tense because life is constantly found in Jesus. Again, we had union with Jesus. Believers are united with Christ. And in Christ, they're united with God the Father. He goes on in verse 12. Whoever has the Son has. And actually in the Greek it says the life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He does it as a positive and a negative here. Those who believe who are born of God are recipients of the life, the recipients of eternal life. He speaks it positively, but he does it negatively. Those who do not have, those who don't possess the Son. How do we possess the Son? By trusting in Him alone for salvation. By realizing that only He can be our Savior. And John here is emphatic because he switches up. He says, those who don't have the Son of God, he's driving his point home. And in the Greek, it would actually say this. Whoever does not have the Son of God, the life he does not have. Eternal life, salvation is found in Christ. So we've looked at the fact that John has talked about core beliefs, that we must believe that Jesus is the Christ, he's the Son of God. We've looked at the witnesses to that testimony, we've looked at the results of that testimony. So I would ask you as we close, what are your core beliefs about Christ? Is your belief or your faith more than an intellectual assent? Remember, you call God a liar if you deny His testimony that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the Christ. And you cannot have God the Father without God the Son. The two go together. Are you experiencing victory? If not, we turn back to Christ. And do you have assurance of your salvation, assurance of your faith? We'll address that next week. Let's pray. Lord, there is so much in here. I pray, Lord, that bottom line, we would just focus upon you, upon who you are. We thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus Christ, who is the Son of God, who is God the Son, who is the Messiah, who is our Savior, who did what we could not do and took the penalty that we deserve. Pray, Lord, that you receive the honor and the glory through this. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.